0: Today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Brian Bates. Brian is the owner of Bear Creek Organic Farm. So, welcome, Brian.
1: Howdy, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. And uh, we're glad uh, we appreciate you taking time. We know that uh, you're very busy. And I know as we were talking before, Ian, you're talking about uh, thinking in your head where your crews were today. And mm-hmm. so, apparently, you have a, a lot going on there at the farm. But okay. um, with Organic Farm, can we kind of what do you mean by organic? I mean, let's, let's start there, because we see the word organic thrown around a lot. And so I think maybe it, to start with, what do you mean by organic? What makes your farm an organic farm?
1: Yeah, so in organic, we are a, a USDA certified organic farm, which is a, a verification through the USDA. Uh, organic is one of the few, it is the main legal description distinguisher that the USDA administers. So claiming something as organic is backed by federal law. Uh, that started about 20 or 30 years ago. Prior to that, there were pockets that were doing their own kind of self-certifying. And then that eventually morphed into what's now called the NOP, the National Organic Program. Uh, that's administered by the National Organic Standards Board that meets twice annually and continues to revisit it. But it is uh, it is a legally defined word. Uh, if you use it and are not certified, that is uh, that is against the law. It is it is a, not just a marketing term. That being said, the whole program is administered by USDA AMS, which is an Agricultural Marketing Service. So it is des- designed as a way to reach consumers. But at its core, a lot of people think organic is a bunch of things that it isn't. What I mean is uh, people think organic it does not use herbicides, does not use pesticides, does not use GMOs as if it's defined by what it doesn't use. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, though it has taken that role in the common vernacular a lot, that's not really how it's meant to be. It's more that it's it's a whole system of thinking of all the parts working together. So it's thinking of things more broadly, like you don't just have a pest problem. You may want to be thinking about biodiversity, soil health, water needs, fertility, all together is one bigger system. So this is, um, for the first 12,000 something years of human history, 100% of agriculture was organic. And it's really only since World War II that we started having uh, chemical or conventional agriculture. So that is one uh, grievance some organic growers have is how come uh we're now the fringe producers when for most of human history we were the only producer and for for 70 years somebody else gets to be called conventional and we're the weirdos but um but yeah I mean you could think of it in old terms as an easier way to think about it um think of fertility coming more from things like manure and cover crops and things like that instead of just chemical fertilizers um and and think of pest control as trying to foster habitat for more good bugs that eat the bad bugs rather than just spraying all the bugs that that kind of thing
0: okay awesome but so i you are allowed to use some herbicides and pesticides then
1: yeah yeah i mean this is a common myth with organic farming that they're just that we just buy fruit seeds put them in the soil and hope for the best and we'll we'll all go hungry if we all do it this way and i think that's just an insane uh stereotype but um yeah there's absolutely uh naturally derived insecticides um pesticides fungicides miticides uh, pl- plenty of those just recently they've started dabbling into herbicides much trickier to execute that um, and never targeted. So if whatever you touch is going to be affected, but they tend to be pretty weak. But yeah, think of, um, so a pesticide, you could have a conventional grower could use a synthetic pesticide. That would be something that is applied to a crop. It is absorbed by the crop and it becomes part of that crop. So a, a systemic insecticide actually becomes part of all the plant tissue flower petals pollen every part of that crop has a little dose of insecticide in it so that when a bad bug or a good bug but when a target bug bites it it gets a low dose of that and dies so that's a that's a synthetic systemic insecticide an organic grower might be trying to control the same bug but we can't use that tool in our tool belt but we could use some botanically derived oils some essential oils some kind of uh, other compound that's uh, of nature, basically. Mm-hmm. We could spray that onto the crop, but it's only on the surface of the crop. So one of the reasons that they're considered a lot less you know, effective is if it rains, it'll wash off you know, at a certain point. It might be on there a couple of days. Um, so you have to apply it more frequently because it is much less potent. And this is the challenge, is that because it's less potent, it is organic and de- deemed like cleaner. Uh, but as such, you may have to use it more frequently. And that can sometimes be part of the increase in cost for organic goods, is that you're, you're doing more frequent crop care rather than set it and forget it.
0: Okay. Cause, well, you know, I'm glad you kind of went there to the price. Because yeah. I know anytime we go to the grocery store, it's going to cost more to get more organic. And I know I have wondered, well, why does that cost that much more? You
1: know, yeah, that so. yeah, comes up all the time. Probably the number one question I get like on farm tours here, when we have people visit the farm and you know, I, I try to explain people you know, without breaking <laughs> down like economics you know, from like the, the, like, the basis. <laughs> oh, the- oh, great, he's going into a lesson. <laughs> right, so, without, without doing like a full macroeconomic supply chain analysis, I sort of just try to put it in simple terms. A lot of people think the Im- increased cost is because it is certified a lot of growers have this perception that it costs money to become certified and therefore the resulting crops produced are more expensive mm-hmm. and I, I always try to dispel that myth um, on our farm certification costs are one half of one percent of our organic sales it's just not enough that a consumer would ever notice that price difference Typically, the reason organic food costs more is, I'm going to say three, I would pick three main reasons. One is it's more labor intensive oftentimes. With the spraying example, you could be using the same exact spraying equipment, high tech, big tractors, doesn't matter, crop duster, whatever. You could use the exact same spraying equipment as a conventional grower, but the number of sprays might be more. So because it's less potent. So like that just adds a cost to the production. Uh, Number two is, and also that spraying, the other part is weed management, cultivation. Cultivation is broadly done on conventional farms with herbicides now and on organic farms, it's still going to be done mechanically or by hand. Um, It could still be really high tech and super fancy, but it's still gonna require a tractor pass or a foot pass. So it's still gonna require that extra, that labor expense. The second major reason for increased cost would be many, if not all of the inputs are more expensive. So for me to get 10 pounds of nitrogen on an acre of ground is gonna cost more than a conventional farmer's access to 10 pounds of nitrogen on 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 an acre of ground, okay? So the, the raw materials either cost more or they're bulkier and take longer to apply. Or they're still, in the case of some specialized nutrients, they're still kind of niche, and so the market is not as broadly built, um, you know, for organic products. You could think of it like it's easy to get gas for your car, but it's harder to find charging stations for your electric car. Doesn't mean the electric car doesn't have merit. It's just that we have a system that's predicated on gas cars, and so that's the case with a lot of uh, organic amendments: is that you can get the conventional thing at the local feed store, and you know, whatever, but it's harder to find the organic alternative. So that can also be an increased cost. And then the third one, and I don't think this is always the case on the grower end of things, but it's often the case on the final marketer end of things is um, you can get more for it. So it's just marketing. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just demand. It is the fastest growing segment in the food industry for the last five years is organic food. So demand far outpaces supply Okay. anybody in the supply chain is going to know that a consumer seeking this is willing to pay a premium that's a given and so i don't tend to find a lot of predatory marketing on the organic side of things it just tends to have an elevated cost and some some um resellers know that
0: okay well mm-hmm. well like you mentioned supply and demand it's going to push
1: yeah whatever it is
0: you're whatever it is you have it's going to push your price.
1: It's the biggest challenge in American organic agriculture is we do not grow enough organic food in America to satisfy the demand for organic food. So we are importing a huge amount of organic food to meet the organic demand stateside. It's, it's a big big strain on the organic sector as being able to keep up with demand.
0: Brian do you see it being feasible to ever go like completely organic?
1: Yeah, you're saying like, could we switch the whole food system to be mm-hmm. organic type of thing? Mm-hmm. It's obviously possible. It's how we built the first 12,000 years of human civilization. Um, so we know we've got good proof of concept, but um, I think there's a couple things to consider. One is, do we need to? Is anybody asking us to do that? I don't know that that's um, the angle that most people have. I think there tends to be a consumer angle. That's the... I care what I'm putting in my body. Mm -hmm. Then you have the environmental angle, which is we as citizens care what farmers are putting on the land and getting into our waterways and in our land. And then you have the producer angle, which is this is what I think is best for my business and my customers and how I want to run my life. And so I think you have these three sort of key stakeholders. And I don't know that any one of those is asking for it to all be organic, just like I think even if we gradually phase out, all these car companies are saying they're no longer going to build cars with internal combustion engines. Well, that's fine. They can switch to all electric production. But there's going to be decades of internal combustion cars still on the road. you know, And I think that's going to continue to be the case. So is it possible? Yeah, it's definitely possible. What we would want to think about is we don't have the skilled workforce to execute it. So you have to be really a lot more dialed in uh, to a whole different host of plant health indicators and systems, soil health. Um, in, for many commodity crops, conventional can be a little bit more plug and play. You know, it's pretty, again, it is so widely used. Enough people have spent enough money to do the research to be like, this is your acre soil test, add this, add this, put the seeds, spray on this interval, harvest on this interval and off you go. And that's um, not as widespread in organic systems because it's not as easy to toggle those levers exactly how you need them. And the response time is usually slower. So if you notice a deficiency in two identical fields, you could correct that nutrient deficiency much more quickly with a synthetic fertilizer than you could with an organic amendment. And so that sort of mid-crop adjustment is harder to do on an organic an inorganic system. But I think it's totally possible to do as much organic food as we want. Um, one thing that I think we overlook is like just for cropland in the United States, the majority of it is in rangeland and pasture and right behind that is actual cropland and that cropland 300 million acres, something like that. Um, That cropland, corn is the vast majority of it. Mm -hmm. And 90.2% of corn in 2020 was not for human consumption in the United States. Mm -hmm. So you could take the biggest chunk of the biggest piece of the biggest use of land and more than 90% of it is not going into our bodies. And so that would free up, you know, hypothetically, an an incredible swath of land if we went with the presumption that organic agriculture takes more space to yield the same amount, which is hotly contested. And I really think it's besides the point, because I think you really just want to focus on what, what consumers want and what people want. By and large, people want organic produce more than anything. And after that, they want organic dairy They really care about like the dairy products. And I think those are definitely the top two. Once you get into things like condiments and oils and things like that, it may be like a want, but not a need type of deal. So Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the emphasis is on the raw materials, the actual raw vegetables and fruits, the raw wheat and things like that. And then what you turn into it after that is kind of up to the consumer. But I think it's, it's obviously possible. It just wouldn't look like how it currently does.
0: Okay. That's fair enough. If it's not being grown for human consumption, what's it being grown for?
1: Well, like in the case of corn, um I think like 40% is for feed for animals. Animal feed. Um, and then more than a quarter of it is for ethanol. And then 20% is for export to do whatever people want to do with it. It gives us some leverage in the geopolitical, you know, import-export game. Okay. Um
0: i just took the assumption most of it was just to make corn syrup
1: oh no corn syrup i mean that is of the edible uses corn syrup is the highest i think corn syrup is like two or three percent okay it's like corn syrup corn starch corn sweeteners
0: mm-hmm.
1: and maybe there's another thing you can do with it but i mean look I, the corn that were that, i didn't know this when i was a kid i learned it pretty quick but like a lot of people don't understand like when you drive by all those cornfields i mean this sounds crazy, right? But like that's not sweet corn. You're right. <laughs> like yep. I think, so I think there's this thing right. that like people were like, wow, people really like their sweet corn in America or whatever. Yeah. You know, like that's not, you know, that's not the corn you're having around the barbecue on the fourth of July. So a sweet corn is is probably I mean, really, when you think about what's edible corn, like you have corn for sweet corn and you have corn for milling into like grain, you know, polenta and cornmeal and things like that. Um popcorn, don't forget my popcorn. Popcorn for sure, but these are all so boutique in the scheme of the corn economy, you know, like we're listing all the ways that we actually eat straight corn, and it's still probably not even five percent of the entire corn crop. You know what I'm saying? So it's definitely just such a small, a small portion. Um And the other, I mentioned that dairy and produce are the two most popular organic items. The one where we see the biggest supply chain squeeze where people want more of it, but the price is quite a bit higher and the availability is quite a bit lower is organic meats. So meats is like protein, you know, chicken, beef. These things are just um, the way we scaled up our livestock industry is not, you know, in tune with nature. And so the way we successfully started lowering the cost of per pound of chicken and and beef and these things and increasing the amount of pounds per week that the American consumer eats of these meats has been really dramatic over the last 80 years. I mean just a profound, you know, from like a special meal around a cut of meat to like just trying to encourage people to have one day meat-free. I mean, what a wild inversion of meat consumption. And the trick to that was how much cheaper we could get the cost of production down. And those measures that we've taken as a as a society, as a conventional agricultural society, don't translate to organic basically at all. Um, And then it's just it's just really hard. So that's really a bottleneck is like if you need, you know, thousands of acres, you would need the way we have feedlots of cows to make that an organic system. There are still organic feedlots for certain stages of life and that's contested within the organic community. But um, if you were just to imagine that many cows on pasture, you would need millions of acres of pasture just to accommodate you know one feedlot you can pass by on the side of the road and so that's one of those things where it's like if we want to accept that cows should be eating grass because they're ruminants and not corn because they don't eat grain but they get fatter with corn quicker Mm
0: -hmm.
1: well that's going to be something we need to discuss and so you basically have two ways to get all those cows on grass you either put them on grass and use the rangelands like we did in the, the day with cowboys and Western moving of you know um, herds of cattle, or you have huge swaths of the country that are ideal producers of hay, and you ship that to ideal areas to put larger concentrations of cows. So you either bring the cows to the grass or the grass to the cows, but there's no real shortcut. And that's one of those bottlenecks that we find with beef and the same happens with chicken, especially.
0: Brian, can I ask you for, to be considered organic meat and organic dairy? Does that get back to then what you're feeding the animals?
1: Oh yeah. Or that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. So, and that is, that is the squeeze in the supply chain. There is no demand squeeze and there is endless, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of demand for organic meat because basically every consumer that wants organic meat can't find enough of it in the form they want, where they buy it. And so everybody is settling in like a good, better, best. Everybody is like hovering in this better. They're like choosing between like cage-free or free range or grass-fed. And they're they're not sure if it really is cage-free or if it really is free range. And like, they're just in this, um, you know, marketing rabbit hole of terms that don't have legal backing. Organic does, and that's like the creme de la creme, but it's also the hardest to achieve because you then need, I mean, let's take chickens, which eat, which do eat corn and it's okay for them to eat corn as opposed to like cows. If, if, if 90% of our cropped land for corn is not for human consumption and 40% is for feed, that's great, but then you need a segment of that 40% to be organic corn to go to those chickens for the organic eggs and organic meat. And so then you need to take a large scale corn producer and persuade them to switch their field to being organic, which could definitely yield them a higher price, but it's gonna require a whole new mind shift in terms of how they grow that corn. And so the demand for the chicken is there, The chicken farmer might be willing to just buy organic feed that's not the problem the bottleneck is where do you get that organic feed which farmer with tens of thousands of acres of corn is going to switch that to organic to capture this higher priced market wow uh,
0: i'm glad you brought that back up about the organic being a legal term because i had already forgotten that and then i'm like oh yeah you're right yeah it's a
1: key distinction i mean you know and it's enforced. I mean, it is actually enforced. You can easily go on the website and say, somebody's calling something organic and I don't think it is. And then they'll open a case investigation and follow up and either give, you know, they usually give somebody a chance to comply and then they find them. And there's so much money in organic. It is widely, uh, like, especially in, um, like, especially in bulk materials where it's so hard to see. Think, think like, Think like barrels of oil, of, of like canola oil, or 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 you know pallet sacks of of wheat or rice or whatever. Like especially coming in from abroad, just getting, following these certificates all the way through to make sure making sure it's accurate. That's that's something that we really want to ensure the integrity. But there's so much room to like fudge some numbers that that's one of those real real things where they've been really increasing enforcement lately. Because like anything, when demand outpaces supply, the less honorable among us are going to look for loopholes. And so you see this with like Manuka honey from New Zealand and like honey in general coming from China, like any food product where the way we want it, there's literally not enough of it. Mm-hmm. somebody, some shady actor is going to be willing to fudge a few things to try to slip it into the supply chain. And that that's a big challenge. So the USDA has really been in, upping the enforcement over the last five years, because uh, that's clearly a, a pressing concern.
0: It, now, there's a few terms that we used, especially early on, I'd like just to jump back real fast and define uh, what they actually mean, just to make sure people understand. Sure. As we said, you um, Herbicides, pesticides, and insecticides. I mean, it's because they, especially when I heard you use the word insecticide, I thought, well, isn't that a pesticide? And so, it, could we? And are those two interchangeable? And what exactly do we mean by, of course, the herbicide?
1: Yeah, for sure. That's that's a great, great love. Love bringing that up. Do um, so you know how a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square? Yeah, familiar with that concept? Okay, so so pesticide is the umbrella term. Something you're spraying to control something you don't want, or spraying, injecting, whatever. However, it's applied. But something you're applying to get rid of something you don't want. A pest. That pest could be. We tend to call herbicides herbicides, but they are all pesticides. So when you need to get your pesticide applicator license, it's for all the pesticides. So. You'd have pests could be weeds. It could be bugs. It could be smaller bugs, which are like mites. So that would be a miticide. Um, you have insecticide, herbicide, miticide, um, fungicide. So those would be fungal pathogens that are you know sporulating that you'd want to be able to control. Um, what other things are there to kill Some bugs? So basically, it's like, you know, you've got, it's all the things you want to kill. And so, again, this is used in conventional and organic, it's just the ingredients in each vary. So, um, you know, an example would be mildew. Nobody wants mildew on their crops. So there are different things you can spray to control mildew, but mildew is not a bug. So an insecticide would be not what you'd use. It'd be a different pesticide, typically in the fungicide category um, that you would be using to control that. Uh, And there are different fungicides you can use. Um, many of the conventional ones have surfactants and other agents in the spray that help it stick or stickers things that make it bind to the leaf or to the flower or whatever and you can't use any of those uh, synthetic agents even if you're even if your controlling ingredient is organic you can't use a synthetic surfactant or other binding agent within that spray so that's where I'm, I'm going into like where it can wash off more easily or whatever. The other thing to consider, and this is like a, this is something that I care about as just like as a human is, there's what's called like the pre-harvest interval or the re-entry period. And that's like how long you can touch until you can touch that crop again, or how long until you can go back into that greenhouse or back into that field and it's safe. Think about like True Green sprays your lawn. And they put the little thing like, you know, peligro, don't walk your dog on the lawn or whatever. Right? So. That's because they just applied something that is bad for paws and, and mouth. You know, it'd be bad to ingest that, bad to touch that. Um, one thing I always really like is pretty much everything an organic grower is gonna use like that pre-harvest interval is usually zero days, okay. Maybe four hours. So yeah, it's not saying eat it, right? <laughs> it's not saying like put on a spoon and you'll be fine, but it's just saying that that's how like that's the level. Of non toxic, we're talking about, and that's how dilute it is applied. Uh, That can also be why it's not nearly as effective sometimes as we wish, (laughs) right? But um, so that's one thing. And then, whereas some of those synthetics, it could be, you know, it could be days, it could be a week before you're allowed to harvest that crop and sell that crop for edible consumption. And so, when you see, have you ever heard of the dirty dozen and the clean 15? All right. So the Dirty Dozen Clean 15 has been a really interesting marketing effort by the Environmental Working Group, which is based in California, where they will uh, sort of secret shopper their way through grocery stores across the country and take samples of vegetables and fruits off the shelf and then send them to a lab for analysis to see if they can measure any pesticide residue on the actual fruit and vegetable at the point of purchase. Because a lot of people think that's a more fair... You know, some growers argue, sure, we spray a lot of stuff, but then we wash it before you eat it, so it's fine, um, which is true for some things and not for others. Just, if a spray is systemic, it's part of all the plant tissues, so if you eat the apple, you're getting a small dose yourself, um, but if it can be washed off, that's true. So, you know, you rinse an apple, you will get things off, that's fine. So that clean 15, dirty dozen list has been a way to help shoppers prioritize which is the most which is. The least bad or the most good depending on how you want to look at that and this goes back to like the three different reasons somebody would buy something that's organic like that would be in the case of you don't want to put something in your body that you don't trust or you don't understand but like you want to put this chemistry in your body you could say i don't care what the farmer's doing i don't care like about you know the watershed effects or whatever that's not my primary concern and most consumers are thinking about what they're about to put in their body or most often in their children's body what they're putting in their body so the clean 15 and the dirty dozen is a list of conventionally grown fruits and vegetables, but the clean 15 are the 15 conventional fruits and vegetables with the least traceable residue of pesticide on them at the grocery store. And the dirty dozen are the 12 dirtiest with the, either the highest concentrations or the most diversity of chemical residue on them at the point of purchase at the grocery store. Oh. And so this is a way to help consumers if they buy organic but maybe they can't always afford it or they can't always find it. Well, you would want to key in on that dirty dozen to make sure you're buying those 12 as organic. But that clean 15, if it's conventional odds are, you know, from a residue standpoint, you're good. And so that's one of these ways to help that decision matrix land you where, you know, to achieve what you want to achieve.
0: Uh, I had not yeah. heard of either of those that way. Yeah. When you said yeah, 30 heard. does, I'm like, oh yeah, every chemistry teacher knows that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there's I a know. there's it's a 30 totally chemicals you're not allowed to have in your kid
1: in high school chemistry lab. Oh, I did not know that. Okay, well, maybe that's what they borrowed it from. It is a team of chemists that came up with this list. So it <laughs> could have been. Yeah, no,
0: that's, that was explained very well. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So what all do you grow then? What What all do you farm?
1: Yeah, so we, um, we're a pretty small in the scheme of things market farm. So a market farm is typically marketing what they grow as opposed to selling to a wholesaler or a commodities broker. So we are typically responsible for selling what we grow. So we're a market farm. Um, We, our farm is 75 acres, but we're really only growing on three or four acres but it's very intense intensively grown upon so we have 10 greenhouses now um, which is nine more than i ever thought i'd have um, and um so we've got 10 greenhouses and then about three acres in the field two to three acres in the field of field production um and we really focus on well there's different reasons why we focus on what we focus on but we focus on greens so that would be microgreens salad greens leafy greens uh tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and then uh garlic and onions and then we sell a lot of plants uh like tomato plants to grow in your garden basil plants to keep on your counter a lot of plants so those are kind of like our three categories of crop um the greens are and tomatoes are disproportionately better fresh we believe So when you think of how things land to the consumer through the supply chain, we're up in northern, northern Michigan. So we're kind of at the end of the end of the road. So by the time a lot of produce has gotten to our stores, it can oftentimes be a little tired. And so that's most noticeable in the greens, which have not a very long shelf life. And so we saw an opportunity to market greens uh, that were organic, that people would care about, but also just being able to have a longer shelf life. So the consumer can have an extra week to eat them as opposed to the other greens. So that was like kind of our strategy on that. Um, tomatoes tomatoes and cucumbers is kind of a no brainer. Like most people just intrinsically understand that like a fresh vine ripened tomato tastes dramatically better uh, than other other tomatoes. Um, and that is that is true in most cases, it's growers go back and forth, but much like bananas are all shipped green, tomatoes are all shipped green and they usually ripen along the way. When we pick a tomato that we sell as red, we pick it red and sell it as red that means we've only got a day or two to sell it but it also means that when you get it it was fully ripened when it was growing on the vine so it matured on the vine that takes a lot more labor to make happen it costs more as a result no doubt about it Um, but that's nice Um, and then the plants is just this piece of if you want to go get plants for your garden like where do you go and you know for most people that's probably going to be a big box store. Um, a lot of towns have a good, you know, nursery that might be a spot to grab those types of things. But a lot of those places are dominated by flower sales because that kind of pays the bills in a lot of cases. And people buy annual flowers, you know, ad nauseum for their whatever, for their gardens and their baskets. And there's just a lot of a lot of bedding plants sold in this country every year. Um, but basically, none of them are certified organic. And so with this whole interest in organic gardening and, you know, growing your own and just all this emphasis of like trying to control a little bit of your own food supply chain, um, gardening is hot. It's been hot for a while. It became insanely hot with COVID, but it's been, it's been in for a bit. And we just noticed both as a consumer and also as somebody paying attention that if you want to have an organic garden and the, first thing you need to put in that garden is organic soil, and that's hard to find, and the second thing you need to find is organic plants, and that's impossible to find, it felt like those were two things that we could help provide, and so our plant sale, every plant we sell is certified organic, and we started with just vegetables and herbs, but we've now expanded to include a fair amount of perennial and annual flowers as well, and so every single thing we sell is organic, and then we have all of the organic soils and organic fertilizers and organic you know this year we added the organic sprays so we're basically just trying to become this hub for people who want to grow an organic garden so they can get the tools the tools to do that um, and that's become a really cool and exciting part of our business and now it is um, yeah it's probably the biggest thing we do is our plant sale in the spring so yeah and that, and that's part of why there's so many greenhouses now so yeah that's been a big that's been a big piece but um you know depending on who listens to this or who hears this you know when i say we're small we're doing like three or four acres you know it's important to understand like last year we grew on three acres that includes the greenhouses and our gross crop sales was around six hundred thousand dollars so you know that's about two hundred thousand dollars an acre yeah and so if you were to do that in like corn you'd be in the hundreds you know uh low hundreds (laughs) so so that's where uh we're not like a lot of farms and i always try to make that clear like i am not suggesting that what we do like replace every acre of corn not not even close but i think what you're going to see and we're already seeing it but what you're going to continue to see is around urban centers which we are not but around urban centers high population areas transit hubs you're going to see a proliferation of greenhouse organic or quasi-organic growers setting up shop to feed into those market channels. Because right now for fresh produce, we're incredibly dependent on the Central Valley in California and Yuma, Arizona. Yuma in the winter, California in the summer. Um, And without those two zones, any disruption in those regions throws off the entire nation's supply chain. You can see that with the E. coli outbreaks for like the last three Thanksgivings, things of that nature, it's very disruptive. So there's a lot of, and shipping is becoming a lot more expensive and it doesn't look like that's going anywhere. So a lot of big greenhouse operations think in the 20 to 100 to 200 acre greenhouses, pretty big greenhouses. A lot of these operations are setting up, you know, outside Chicago, outside DC, outside New York, outside, you know, Nashville. And they'll typically try to locate, like co-locate near decent distribution. So like a via freeway or an interstate yeah. and usually within a hundred miles of a metro area because for some reason uh, we love saying something is from within hundred miles, that's become a thing. And so they oftentimes pick a spot that's like, you know the cheapest land within hundred miles and then just set up, set up a shop. And so you're seeing that all across New England which has less land than a lot of areas and you're starting to see it more in Chicago and other areas. Um, and I think that's this piece of when you build a greenhouse a bunch of crops don't pay the bills. Okay, so you are already eliminated, you know, 80% of crops would not justify the cost of construction of a greenhouse. So you're going to see a real doubling down in these particular markets of your tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and then your salad greens, herbs, leafy greens, like those are going to be the things that pay the bills right off the bat, um, by far.
0: That makes sense. I just say we say it that way. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you can ship a potato across the country, and it's hard to tell that, that potato has traveled or was harvested months ago. I mean, a fresh, toma- a fresh potato is great, don't get me wrong, but there are certain things where that transit does not depreciate, you know, it doesn't affect the quality. So if you get a potato that's been shipped, not a big deal. Onions, not a big deal. Winter squash, all these storage crops, carrots, roots, a lot of those things, not such a big deal. And so you see real mechanization in those markets massive scaled operations carrots is a great example just huge huge carrot operations Um, and so you see a lot of consolidation in that supply chain and it and it tends to you know for the most part work out okay it's those perishable and labor intensive crops where you're picking tomatoes picking cucumbers there's no machine to do that for you those are the ones that we're going to start seeing you know co-located closer to where they're being consumed
0: That totally makes sense. I, I wish you guys were closer to us.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're
0: talking about what we're playing, going to plant in the season in our gardens at yeah. home. And uh, so, yeah, it's, I think everyone's starting to think about that that's in a similar climate. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, thank you. This was awesome. So oh, yeah. 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 Got a uh, lot so out of this it. This was awesome. I, I learned, a, 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 I'd wondered about some of these things myself. I mean, you mentioned there are misconceptions and what. Uh, organic means yeah uh, we hear the word organic and then like you said for you also read the word cage free Mm -hmm. well it's just because you read it was cage free doesn't mean it wasn't a bigger cage or whatever you know it's that's that's not regulated and uh, i I didn't realize a lot of those words weren't regulated
1: well yeah i mean it's truth and marketing so it's basically you're on the hook for being able to prove what you say is true but that means somebody needs to follow up on the complaint saying that it's not true and so that that becomes this sort of, you know, it's like zoning enforcement, which in most areas is complaint based. So somebody could be operating something not legitimately for years in any realm of industry, but until somebody you know blows the whistle or draws attention, it goes unnoticed. And so uh, the organic industry has a handful of watchdogs, uh, these groups that try to keep organic honest. And um, I didn't get into that because I this. For this summary piece it's not worth getting into the weeds on that but that is definitely the new frontier of organic enforcement and a lot of it is surrounding hydroponic growing because you can scale it up quite quickly but mm-hmm. by all accounts for the last 150 years the idea of organic growing from the beginning of sir albert howard in the late 1800s the whole idea was that it was in the soil so there's this real rift in the organic movement over hydroponic and some certifiers uh, approve some certifiers approve it and some don't and that's caused friction among certifiers and who enforces this and who's in charge of certifying the certifiers which is the usda but then who's lobbying those people so it's become a really contentious thing so actually like this year we're adding an add-on label to our farm called the real organic project um, which is a a farmer-led movement to certify that you're like really organic and i had a lot of reservations about doing this because i don't want to undermine that organic seal because i do believe that that is still the best thing best single thing you can put on a package that you sell but um but at the same time i'm watching you know driscoll's big berry producers are dumping millions into this effort taking it to the california supreme court i mean really fighting hard to let her hydroponic be approved um because it saves them a lot saves them a lot of money yeah Um, wow the politics in it yeah Yeah. so that's 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 in the weeds and i i don't like to get into that because that's that's,
0: that's higher we want to go
1: yeah because like then then i don't want somebody's takeaway to be like oh maybe organics not all it's cracked up to be because like at the end of the day it, it definitely is a lot of things that other food is not Uh, but like all things there's there's you know controversy and like I said it is so it is for as long as I've been involved with this so 11 years it has it has been the fastest growing segment of American food so there's just always going to be demand and there's always going to be you know when everybody needed a mask Some shady people started shelling not official, you know, N95 masks. And so like there's just that challenge when there's this much demand for something. But as a grower, it's pretty, it's pretty sweet because a lot of your marketing has precedes you. You just have to bring the product to the market. But most people through other channels have become aware that they may want some organic food. They're just not sure, you know, where to look or where to go. Totally. Well,
0: cool.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much, Brian.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Happy to do it.